This is a Scream Queen production. Jen Carpenter. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. And if you don't want to listen, that's okay. If you want to unfollow me because of what I'm going to talk about, that's okay too, honestly. Because as much as I try to keep politics out of this space, I simply can't not talk about what's happening in the world right now. As we're all painfully aware, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last week, and I'm not going to sit here and try to preach morals or ethics or basic human rights to anyone. What I am going to do, though, is take us back 100 years or so, much like the Supreme Court just did, and talk about what a world where abortion is illegal looks like. In the 1920s, over 15,000 women died from abortion complications every year. 15,000 women per year, which is apparently a lesson that we're going to have to learn the hard way again. And at what cost? How many thousands of women this time? Unsafe, back-alley abortions, women taking their own lives because they feel there's no other way out, Men killing the women they get pregnant because they feel stuck. Think I'm exaggerating? I'm not. Today I'm going to share with you three local stories. One about the consequences of unsafe abortions. Spoiler alert, it's worse than you're imagining. One about a woman who ended her life due to an unplanned pregnancy. And one about a woman who was killed by the man that got her pregnant because it complicated things for him. And these are all very real, very close to home examples of what happens when people's rights are stripped from them, leaving them feeling trapped. Before we get into today's episode, I do need to take a moment to thank our sponsor. Care of is a subscription service that ships high-quality, personalized vitamins, supplements, and powders directly to your door each month. Each shipment comes with a customized booklet showing you exactly what's in your individual daily packs and why each supplement was recommended specifically for you and your health goals. How does Care of know what your health goals are? You're going to tell them. Your Care of journey begins with a short in-depth online quiz about your lifestyle and health goals so that Care-of can give you the best personalized recommendation for you. Deciding what supplements and vitamins to take on your own can be a pretty daunting task. Have you seen the vitamin aisle at your local drugstore lately? Care-of takes all the guesswork out of it for you. They're not focused on what's trending as the new next big thing. They're focused on what you need to accomplish your health goals. I love how quick and easy it is to just grab my daily vitamin pack and go in the morning. No measuring or dispensing or trying to make sure I remembered everything. 
just grab the packet. It's got your name right on it. Grab the packet out of the cute little dispenser box and go. And right now, Soda listeners get 50% off your first order of Care Of by visiting TakeCareOf.com and entering promo code SODEAD50. Again, that is TakeCareOf.com, promo code SODEAD50. Take that quick quiz. They'll give you recommendations. You choose which ones you want from the recommendation list you get. And bada-bing, bada-boom, vitamins and supplements on your doorstep. You don't even have to go to the store. So get started on your personal care of journey today and be sure to tell them that I sent you. Grand Ledge, Michigan. Aside from Lansing and Ionia, it might just be the city that we talk about the most here on So Dead. We've uncovered some pretty horrific secrets that my adopted hometown tried to bury, but this one is definitely the worst. So just to refresh the memories of our non-local listeners, Grand Ledge is one of those quaint little communities where nothing bad ever happens. The downtown area is comprised of century-plus old buildings with cute little shops and businesses on the ground level and apartments on the upper levels. Some of those apartments are super nice with exposed brick and hardwood floors and spiral staircases, while others look like they've been run by slumlords for the past hundred years because they have. It's, it's a mixed bag, honestly. One such building, hi- historic, not slumlordy, is located at the corner of South Bridge Street and East River Street, right next to the historic Grand Ledge Opera House. It's a three-story brick-and-stone building that is home to a number of businesses and living spaces today. On the front of the building, there is a giant old-timey-looking plaque with the letters I-O-O-F, which stands for the Independent Order of Oddfellows. And we've talked about the Oddfellows before, so I'm not going to get into all of that again. But essentially, it's a secret society that performs weird rituals with human remains and for some reason often leaves those remains behind when they vacate the premises, creating an actual skeletons-in-the-closet scenario for unsuspecting new tenants. Cool, right? March 25th, 1925 was a Wednesday. A concerned Grand Legion placed a call to the local sheriff's office to report that there was a dangerous pack of wild dogs fighting out behind the Odd Fellows Hall. So Sheriff's Deputy Burr Sackett responded to the scene, and he did indeed find several stray dogs aggressively fighting over something. But when he saw what that something was, the dogs immediately ceased to be his concern. Because what they were fighting over was the corpse of a human baby. The tiny body was rushed to the coroner's office where it was determined that the baby was about a week old at the time of its death and had been dead roughly 48 hours. While the little corpse was badly burned, it was believed that this was not the cause of death but a result of someone trying to cremate the body. There was air in the baby's lungs, which meant it had been born alive and someone had likely killed it. The community was shocked, obviously. A lot of wild things happened in Grand Ledge in its early days, but stray dogs fighting over the partially burned corpse of an infant in the heart of downtown is, uh, that's extreme. People were horrified. Authorities suspected murder, and they were in the very beginning stages of their investigation, 
when it happened again. March 31st, 1925 was a Monday, five days later. Two young boys were playing at the city dump because what else was there to do in the 1920s when they found the body of a small baby wrapped in the comics from the Sunday paper buried in a pile of trash. The traumatized children took the little body to the prosecuting attorney's office, which is, that was an odd choice, so I'm guessing his house or his office must have been, like, very near the dump. The prosecutor took the body to the coroner, and the coroner determined this baby to be seven months old and dead for less than 24 hours before it was found. So, now they really had a problem. Not one but two dead babies found in downtown Grand Ledge in less than a week's time. Unheard of. Just unheard of. Authorities feared, in 1920s speak, I'm going to give this to you verbatim, that someone in the vicinity had undertaken to dispose of unwanted babies in a wholesale manner, meaning someone was being paid to take babies off the hands of people who didn't want or couldn't care for them, and instead of finding them new homes, they were just killing them and tossing them away like trash. The community was in an uproar, and the police were desperate to find the culprit before another dead baby turned up. On April 22nd, 1925, nearly a month after the first baby was found behind the Oddfellows building, authorities arrested 59-year-old Maurice Howell, a disgraced Lansing doctor who was already awaiting trial on a manslaughter charge. The arrest came after a 16-year-old girl by the name of Flossie Bell Corlew signed a sworn affidavit stating that the baby found at the Grand Ledge City dump wrapped in the Sunday morning comics, was hers. Flossie Bell was a newly married gal from Mulliken, uh, which is a small village on the outskirts of Grand Ledge. She had, according to Find a Grave, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 or more siblings. On March 1st, 1925, she and 21-year-old Wilbur Corlew of Grand Ledge filed for a marriage license, at which point Flossie Bell was several months pregnant. On March 30th, less than a month into their marriage, they found themselves at the office of Dr. Maurice Howell in the Pruden Building in downtown Lansing, where he'd agreed to perform an illegal operation for the sum of $25. Flossie's mother paid him $10 up front and was to pay him the remaining $15 upon completion of his services. One thing I found a bit suspicious, just kind of in my digging in general into this family, was that Dr. Howell and Wilbur Corlew's mother were neighbors. They both lived on North Franklin Street in Lansing, which we now know as Grand River Avenue. Why this woman would have her son and his teenage bride go see a doctor who was awaiting trial on manslaughter charges stemming from a case we'll talk about in a minute, in which he killed a teenage girl in a botched abortion? Like, why? Well, mother-in-laws can be evil, so mayhaps she was hoping for a repeat. I don't know. But at any rate, Wilbur and Flossie Bell went to Lansing for the procedure when Flossie was about five months pregnant. So that that initial news report, whether the newspaper or the coroner got it wrong, saying that the baby found at the dump was seven months old, it was not. It was a five-month-old fetus. Once the procedure was done, 
Dr. Howell sent the Corlews off with the tiny corpse. Wilbur disposed of the body at the city dump, and Flossie Bell's mother never paid Dr. Howell the remaining $15 she owed him. Whether out of guilt over their actions or fear of being caught, the Corlews confessed all to the sheriff after their baby's body was found, and Dr. Howell was arrested. Once he'd been arrested for the Corlew baby's death, it was safe to assume that he was also responsible for the dead baby found five days prior, although, to the very best of my knowledge, that baby was never identified and the doctor never faced charges for that one. While it was mentioned in one article that Wilbur Corlew might be charged with disposing of human remains without a certificate, I was unable to find anything about him or Flossie Bell actually facing any sort of charges. But I was able to find some information on kind of where their lives went after this very traumatic experience. The following year, in 1926, they had another baby, Ruth, baby Ruth, At some point, they must have gotten divorced because when Wilbur died in a tragic accident in 1935, a woman by the name of Beatrice was listed as his widow. In 1935, Wilbur was 35 years old. His daughter, Ruth, was nine. Flossie Bell, who it seems was his ex-wife at this point, although I was able to find no mention of their divorce or anything on this Beatrice character, other than in Wilbur's death announcement, um, Flossie would have been 27. Wilbur was working for Consumers Power, which we now call Consumers Energy, and I used to work there many, many lifetimes ago. Um, He was working out repairing downed power lines following a violent storm when he was electrocuted and killed. The following year, in 1936, Flossie Bell remarried and she had two more children with her second husband. She worked for General Motors for many, many years and she lived until the ripe old age of 92. But back to Dr. Howell, who is now facing manslaughter charges for the death of the Corlew baby, is suspected of murdering the Oddfellows baby, origin unknown, and is already awaiting trial on previous manslaughter charges. So let's talk about those. In April of 1924, so about a year prior to the dead baby incidents, Three teenage girls were admitted to Sparrow Hospital for complications following illegal operations. That's what the newspaper usually used instead of the term abortion. um, And the actual charge when it was charged was illegal operation, not abortion, most commonly. Two of those girls were treated and released pretty quickly, but the third was suffering from blood poisoning and she nearly died. She admitted to doctors and later to authorities that she'd had an abortion a week or so earlier, and she named both the doctor who performed the procedure and the young man responsible for her delicate condition. The doctor was promptly arrested, and the young man married the girl to make an honest woman out of her while she was still in the hospital on her deathbed. She did recover, though. Once the investigation into Dr. Howell's practices began, things took a turn real quick. Because in November of 1923, five months earlier, an 18-year-old girl by the name of Ida Mae Druce died at Sparrow Hospital after being treated by Dr. Howell. On her death certificate, Dr. Howell listed malignant jaundice and probably gallstones as the cause of death. Probably gallstones? What the fuck kind of diagnosis is that? 
Ida May's family at the time took the doctor at his word. Her obituary simply stated that she died from a brief illness. They buried her, and that was that. Until more teenage girls turned up at the same hospital near death after being treated by Dr. Howell. Authorities quickly made the connection, and Ida May's father agreed to have her body exhumed. It was confirmed post-mortem that an abortion had been performed on her shortly before her death. Not a gallstone in sight. So on Monday, April 14, 1924, Dr. Howell was charged with performing an illegal operation on the unnamed girl in the hospital who nearly died from the blood poisoning. He posted a $1,000 bond, and he was released the following day. It was revealed at that time that he'd been barred from practicing medicine at Sparrow Hospital, and he'd been expelled from the Ingham County Medical Society, so his colleagues knew there was fuckery afoot before all this came about. Arrested Monday the 14th, released on Tuesday the 15th, and then rearrested on Thursday the 17th of April on a charge of manslaughter for the death of Ida Mae Druce. He posted a $4,000 bond for the manslaughter charge and was released the same day. So in total, he had a $5,000 bond, which in today's money would be over $80,000. Still, though, for Killing a teenage girl and nearly killing three others, $80,000? What the fuck? While Dr. Howell was out on bond, he was arrested again. In January of 1925, so at this point we're at over a year after Ida Mae Druce's death and we're about nine months after the three girls turned up at Sparrow following botched abortions. Dr. Howell was arrested again for illegal furnishing of liquor when officers raided his office in the Pruden building and found him and a known pill pusher by the name of Audrey Wilson having a two-person party complete with moonshining cocaine. His bond for that was set at $400. He posted it and he was released again. It was also revealed at this time that he was facing federal charges for drug smuggling. This was two months before the dead babies started turning up in Grand Ledge. Why was he not in jail? I I don't get it. Anyway, back to April 22nd, 1925, where this story kind of started. Dr. Howell is arrested again, this time for manslaughter charges in the death of Wilbur and Flossie Bell Corlew's baby. So with two manslaughter charges, an abortion charge, and the drug and alcohol charges all pending, they're not letting him out this time, right? Wrong. He was allowed to post another $5,000 bond to secure his release. Trial proceedings began in May of 1925, and in October, he was sentenced to six months to a year behind bars. Six months to a year, rough. In 1928, Dr. Howell's name again graced newspaper headlines when he was arrested in the Michigan State Police's Quack War, as the newspapers called it at the time. This fucker was managing and treating patients at a bogus medical facility in Hamtramck near Detroit where most of the practitioners had no medical degrees at all. He was arrested again, and his medical license was permanently revoked for unethical practices. How did he still have his medical license at this point? 
Following the raid on the Hamtramck facility, the police chief said that Dr. Howell's office, specifically his office within this bigger office, was the most unsanitary medical office he'd ever seen. If Dr. Howell served any jail time for this new charge, I couldn't find record of it. What I did find was a short blurb on his death a decade later in May of 1939 when he was 71 years old. At the time, he was living in Battle Creek and he was suffering from pernicious anemia and a kidney ailment and he'd had both legs amputated a couple years prior. This article made sure to mention that he had retired from medicine about 10 years prior. Yeah, no. They retired you for you. That was not a voluntary thing. So, yeah, I mean, be prepared, I guess, for the Dr. Howells of the world to make a comeback, hacking up the wombs of desperate women who feel like this is their only option. And then there's Maple Sturdivant. Mabel was born in 1875 to a prominent family in Gillette, Pennsylvania. In 1901, she traveled to Buffalo for the Pan-American Exposition, which we've talked about the World's Fair in Chicago a lot um, because of my obsession with H.H. Holmes, and that's exactly what this was. This was a World's Fair production. It occupied 350 acres and drew over 8 million tourists to the city over the six-month period that it was going on. But one expo-goer in particular caught Mabel Sturdivant's eye. J. Ward Copeland was a day clerk at a Michigan hotel who visited the Buffalo Expo on vacation. He and Mabel began a hot and heavy love affair that continued via the written word after they both returned home. They kept in touch by letter despite the 500 miles between them, which was a lot further in 1901 than it is today, obviously. In the summer of 1903, when Mabel was 28, she could no longer stand to be separated from her love, so she made plans to visit family in Marshall, Michigan, a small town about 25 miles south of Charlotte, where Ward lived and worked. She got a job at the Washington Hotel in Marshall while Ward worked at the Williams House, sometimes referred to as Hotel Williams, in Charlotte. The two picked up where they'd left off nearly two years prior in New York at the expo, and they traveled back and forth as much as they could to visit one another. They talked about marriage, which was good, because before long, Mabel found herself with child. According to Ward, he wanted to marry her, but she had an opiate addiction that she needed to kick before he would consider her wife material. As her pregnancy progressed, Mabel became desperate to get married. She was starting to show. And this was 1903. A gal couldn't just walk around pregnant and unwed in 1903. But the more that Ward resisted, the more obsessed Mabel got to the point that it was more of a stalking situation than an actual relationship, which was not a good thing, obviously. In October of 1903, Mabel was staying at the Anderson House in Eaton Rapids, which is another small town only about 10 miles from Charlotte. She made one last plea for Ward to marry her, and when he refused, she overdosed on opium in an attempt to kill herself. When Ward found out, he went and got her, and he took her back to Charlotte with him and put her up in her room at Williams House, where he lived and worked. Having Mabel so near, though, proved to be too much for him, and on October 30th, 1903, 
Devil's Night of all nights, he just skipped town without telling Mabel where he was going or even that he was leaving. Mabel had no interest in staying at William's house with Ward gone, so she checked herself into the nearby Phoenix House, which was another hotel. And that is where she was found on November 2nd, three days after Ward left her, hanging from her bedroom ceiling. The tragic death of Mabel Sturdivant sent shockwaves through the Charlotte community. A pretty, unwed pregnant girl who took her own life because the man who'd ruined her refused to marry her. People were angry, and so it probably wasn't the best idea for J. Ward Copeland to return to town right away. But he did. Why Ward went home as soon as he found out about Mabel's death is unclear. Was it out of a sense of duty and or grief, or was he lured home by his boss at William's house, as was later alleged? Either way, when he returned to Charlotte, things did not go well. The prosecutor quelled the angry mob for the first few days by promising them that he was investigating and they were going to nail that bastard to the wall. But when the prosecutor released a statement saying that he couldn't press charges because he didn't have any evidence, basically, there was no proof that Ward was the father of Mabel's baby and Mabel wasn't there anymore to accuse him, shit hit the fan. These backwoods idiots literally passed around a petition to round up volunteers to go and tar and feather this man. They literally signed their names, leaving physical proof of their plan. A crowd of around 300 people gathered down the street from William's house, and at 8 p.m. on November 6, 1903, they stormed the castle. The owner of William's house, only mentioned in the articles I found as Williams, tried to ring the police, but all of the deputies were conveniently out of office at that very moment. So Ward ran up the stairs to his bedroom, he barricaded the door, and crawled under the bed. This howling mob broke down the door and dragged him out into the street, where they strung him up, ripped his clothes from his body, and then they... This is really weird because it's not like he was famous or anything. They took the tattered pieces of his clothing and like pinned it to their own lapels like a trophy, which is super weird. And then they absolutely covered him with tar and feathers. Let's not talk about why the people of Charlotte were so quick and adept at tar and feathering someone, shall we? And these were not just like... The country boys. Well, I mean, it was Charlotte, so they were all country boys, I suppose. But these were some of the town's most prominent citizens. The leader of the pack made a speech, and he told Ward that he had 24 hours to get out of town or they were going to do it all right over again. The mob quickly dispersed, and Ward ran back into the hotel to pack his things. He got to the train station as quickly as he could, with Detroit believed to be his destination. But when the train was delayed, a crowd began to gather again, threatening violence. Finally, the police arrived, and they provided Ward with protection until he was able to board the train. Hang on, though, because this one gets weirder. During all of the mobbing and tarring and feathering, the fine citizens of Charlotte went after Mr. Williams of House Williams as well. Not physically, 
but verbally. They began hurling accusations, the whole, what kind of place are you running here? Accusing him of having an inappropriate relationship with one of his employees, May Gregg. Basically accusing him of being just like Ward and kind of allowing that kind of environment just in general. And he'd seen what happened to Ward. So not 48 hours after Ward was tarred and feathered in the middle of Main Street and run out of town, Mr. Williams and Miss May booked it to Lansing and got hitched. No tar or feathers for them. Thank you very much. Just as they were arriving back home, the city went dark. <laughs> These wackadoos decided to hang J. Ward Copeland, who'd left town two days earlier, just like they'd told him to, in effigy. As they were positioning their fake ward, they dragged it across the power lines and caused a citywide outage. Lest there be any confusion over who they were pretending to hang, on the back of this crudely constructed figure were the words, The Remains of J. Ward Copeland. As it turned out, J. Ward Copeland wasn't done with Charlotte either. He started pressing charges and suing the shit out of everybody. The sheriff the deputies, the leaders of the mob. He was pressing charges left and right, going after that money, honey. And here's a weird, here's a weird, just a weird. Uh, So this all happened in November of 1903, but it was January of 1904 by the time arrests were made. Eaton County Deputy Burr Sackett traveled from Grand Ledge to Charlotte to start rounding people up. Why does the name Burr Sackett sound familiar? Because he's the officer that found the baby behind the Odd Fellows building in Grand Ledge. He was sent to Charlotte to arrest three men, John Hoffman, Curtis Pratt, and John McFarland, on charges of intent to do great bodily harm without the crime of murder, which sounds like a fair charge to me. But when he went to arrest Pratt, he arrested the wrong Pratt. Instead of Curtis the asshat, he arrested Vern Pratt the barber. He took this poor guy all the way back to Grand Ledge with him under heavy protest, only to realize his mistake once they got there. To make good on his blunder, Sackett gave Vern Pratt $750 cash and a big old I'm sorry. It's just weird. As the whole criminal charges slash lawsuit situation played out, another abortion scandal was afoot in Charlotte. Dr. W.E. Newark, who ran the Charlotte Sanitarium, was charged with manslaughter in the death of Harriet Willits, a married woman from Marshall who died during an illegal operation performed by Dr. Newark. And guess who the prosecution brought in as their star witness? J. Ward Copeland. Why? I could not find an answer to that question. Um, My two Possible options are, one, maybe Harriet was staying at the Williams house when she came to town for the procedure and, like, he heard and saw some shit. Or, two, maybe he had had dealings with Dr. Newark trying to get Mabel an abortion before she killed herself. But I don't know because I couldn't find any further information other than that he had been the star witness in this trial. So when Ward first returned to Charlotte for this trial, he did so with a gun on his hip, which I feel was a fair reaction. But before long, the people of Charlotte decided they'd probably overreacted a bit with him, and Ward was an okay guy after all. 
partly because he testified against Dr. Newark, but partly because he furnished a letter that he claimed he'd gotten from Mabel before she died that really kind of changed the whole vibe about that relationship. Part of the letter said, For reasons better known to myself, I cannot become your wife and have mailed the watch you gave me to you today. So he'd given her a watch. She's sending it back saying, I can't marry you and I can't tell you why. This letter, paired with Ward's insistence that he was not the man who'd ruined Mabel, was enough for the community, apparently. So he got his old job back at Williams' house, and he dropped his lawsuit against the sheriff's office, but he proceeded with pressing charges against the men who had applied tar and feather to his skin. Which, again, I feel like that's pretty fair. How that all turned out with the lawsuits, I'm not really sure because I couldn't find anything else on it. Was J. Ward Copeland a garbage human who got an unmarried woman pregnant and then refused to make an honest woman out of her, causing her to take her own life? Maybe. Or was Mabel Sturdivant, a desperate woman in a bad situation, trying to pin an unplanned pregnancy on a man who wasn't the father— that ended her life because she couldn't live with the shame. I honestly don't know, because this story was really hard to find good info on. What I do know, however, is that a beautiful young woman died because of an unplanned pregnancy. It's rough, but it's about to get rougher, because we're going to talk about Cora Raber. Cora May Raber was born on October 16, 1897, to James and Bertha Raber of Glendora, Glendora, Michigan. Never heard of it. Uh, A teeny tiny township near the Michigan-Indiana border in the Benton Harbor-St. Joseph area. House of David territory. In their heyday even, so it was weird times around there for sure. Cora was the middle child of five. She was a farmer's daughter with a reputation as a good girl, pretty, petite, with black hair, dark eyes. At age 25, she was still living at home, unmarried, unattached, and this was when she met local boy Ace Zupke. Emil Ace Zupke was a year younger than Cora, one of 12 kids born to Albert and Pauline Zupke of Royalton Township, another small community in that Benton Harbor area. He was also from a farming family, and he was also unmarried and unattached in the spring of 1924 when he went for a drive with friends and wound up at the Raber home for the first time. Ace, his older brother, and two female acquaintances were out cruising the back roads when the girls suggested they stop at the Raber farm to have Cora tell them their fortunes, apparently something she was known for locally. It would be a bit of a stretch to say that sparks flew between Ace and Cora when they first met, but there was a bit of a mutual attraction, and they struck up a kinship of sorts. Every now and then, Ace would drive out to the Raber farm, sometimes alone, sometimes with friends. Sometimes he and Cora would sit on the porch and talk. Sometimes they would go for a drive. And sometimes they would take things a little too far. And that's how Cora found herself in a delicate condition in the summer of 1924. She wrote Ace a letter telling him that she thought she was in trouble, asking him to come talk with her about it. So sometime around late June, early July, Ace rode out to the Raber farm one last time. Cora's family was at home, so the two talked outside next to his car. Cora told Ace that she'd tried every home remedy she'd ever heard of to get rid of her troubles, 
but nothing worked. Neither of them had the means to pay for an illegal operation, so the only solution in her mind was for them to get married and for him to make an honest woman out of her. Ace later testified, and this is verbatim, his words, I told her I didn't think enough of her to get married to her. The truth was, Ace was head over heels in love with another farmer's daughter, 19-year-old Florence McKinney of Hollywood. Not Hollywood, California, but Hollywood, Michigan, which I also somehow did not know existed before today. This was just another little baby-sized town in the House of David cult territory. Florence was described as a farm girl flapper, which I take to mean that she was trying to live the flapper girl lifestyle, but like she was a farm girl from rural Michigan, so she didn't quite get it right. Cora was also described as a flapper in some of the articles I read, so um, some similarities there. I was only able to find one photo of Cora, and you can't see her face very well, but the girls did look pretty similar from what I was able to tell. What Cora didn't know was that Ace and Florence were engaged, due to be married in a small ceremony on August 10th, 1924. So Cora's situation complicated things quite a bit. In preparation for his new life, Ace, who had lived at home and worked on the family farm his entire life, got his own place and got a job as a molder at the local foundry. Meanwhile, Cora was making plans of her own. She was hiding her pregnancy from her family, but she confided in family friend L.A. King, who was not only a doctor, but was the mayor of St. Joseph. He examined Cora, confirmed her pregnancy, then advised her to file a warrant with the local justice of the peace. This was a thing that was done back then. Basically, an unmarried woman with child could file a warrant naming the baby's father, stating that he refused to marry her. And the man would be arrested, there would be court proceedings, and if the judge believed that he was indeed the father, he would order child support and all that. So on Saturday, August 2nd, Cora met with the local justice of the peace and she signed a warrant naming Ace Zupke as the father of her baby. She asked the justice to hold off for just a few days on filing the warrant as she wanted to give Ace one more chance to make an honest woman out of her. She sent him one final letter basically saying, Look, the mayor doctor knows about the baby. The justice of the peace knows about the baby. I can't hide it for very much longer. I've signed a warrant naming you as the father, and if you don't marry me, the justice is going to file this warrant, and you're going to be screwed. So just do the right thing and marry me before I start showing, you fucking asshole. On Monday, August 4th, Cora received a letter back from Ace agreeing to marry her. He instructed her to meet him at Knack's Drugstore at 8 p.m. on Wednesday, August 6th, and they would go get married. Cora was elated. She confessed everything to her mother and told her about her plans. Yes, I'm pregnant, but I'm getting married before anyone can tell, so it's all going to be okay. They decided that they weren't going to tell Cora's father about all of this until after she was actually married. So on Wednesday, August 6, 1925, Cora's brother drove her from the family farm in Glendora to Nax Drugstore in St. Joseph to meet up with her husband-to-be. On Sunday, August 10th, the day Ace Zupke and Florence McKinney were supposed to get married, 
A gruesome discovery was made by a mint farmer inspecting his crops near the Pear Marquette Railroad tracks in Arden, another small Michigan town I'd never heard of, again in that same Benton Harbor, St. Joseph vicinity. The badly decomposed body of a young woman, half-naked and mauled by animals, was found in a ditch partially obscured by tall weeds. Upon examination, it was determined that the woman was pregnant at the time of her death. So, authorities began to question local doctors to see if any local girls in trouble had sought help. Dr. L.A. King feared that the body might be that of Cora Raber, and he told police as much. When authorities visited the Raber farm, they learned that the family hadn't seen or heard from Cora in several days, which wasn't super odd to them because they'd sent her off to get married, so they just assumed she was on her honeymoon. The body was so badly decomposed that the family wasn't allowed to see it, so they identified Cora by her personal belongings, namely a wishbone necklace and a bracelet with a C for Cora on it. And after that, it didn't take authorities long to connect the dots. On Tuesday, August 12th, Emil Ace Zupke was arrested in the middle of his workday at Covell Manufacturing Plant in Benton Harbor. Florence McKinney was picked up at her family's farm. They both confessed pretty easily, although Ace's story changed a few times in the beginning, and they disagreed on one key point in particular. According to Ace, he met Cora at Knack's drugstore that night, just like he told her he would. When she got into his roadster with him, she thought they were going to get married, but instead they wound up at the McKinney farm, where Ace stopped the car because he said they had a flat tire. Florence came outside and got into the car with Ace and Cora. Florence was now driving. Cora was on the passenger side, and Ace was sandwiched between them in the front seat. Star Roadsters were pretty small cars, so it was a tight fit, and it was late at night in the 1920s out in the country. There were no street lights or lights of any kind to speak of, so according to Florence, she couldn't see what was happening as she felt a commotion beside her. What was happening was that Ace was strangling Cora caveman style, in the words of one newspaper, whatever that means. According to Ace, Cora didn't even put up a fight. She just let him literally choke the life out of her. By the time Florence managed to pull the car over to the side of the road, Cora was unconscious. Ace told her they needed to get rid of the body, but Florence wanted to take Cora to the doctor in hopes that she was just unconscious and not dead. Ace assured Florence that her romantic rival was very dead, and so together they dragged Cora's lifeless body out of the car and dumped her near the railroad tracks, then returned to the McKinney farm. In light of this turn of events, they decided that it was probably best not to get married right away. According to Ace, they were still very much in love and planning to marry when the time was right. In fact, in his first interview with police, he left Florence out of the story completely in an attempt to protect her. But according to Florence, she had no intention of marrying Ace after he killed Cora right in front of her, which makes sense. But she appeased him and acted like she was still going along with it because she was fucking scared. He was a killer, right? 
When Ace found this out, he quickly changed his story and he implicated his teenage lover. He said he'd told her in the weeks before the murder that he was going to kill Cora. And then when he and Cora arrived at the McKinney farm that night, he told Florence that he was going to kill the mother of his child. In fact, there were rumors for years that Florence was actually the mastermind behind the whole thing. But according to Florence, she had no idea that Ace was planning to kill Cora, and she had no idea that he was doing it until it was too late, even though she was literally sitting shoulder to shoulder with him. And so authorities weren't really buying that story. 24-year-old Emil Ace Zupke was charged with first-degree murder in the death of 25-year-old Cora Raber, and 19-year-old Florence McKinney was charged with second-degree murder for her hand in things. Their court dates were set for September. Florence's family posted her bond and hid her from the public eye as her trial approached. Ace's family turned their backs on him and offered him zero financial or moral support, which is exactly what he deserved. So he sat behind bars, unable to afford an attorney until it was time to go in front of the judge. Due to the fact that he had no lawyer and had already (laughs) given a full confession, Ace pled guilty to the first-degree murder charge and was sentenced to life in prison. Florence pled not guilty, but a jury disagreed found her guilty of second-degree murder, and they sentenced her to one to seven years in prison. She served less than a year and was paroled in 1925, just in time for Christmas. Ace Zupke served just 11 years of his life sentence before being paroled in 1935. He returned to his father's farm, and then he found himself back in prison For another five years, just a few years later, 1938, he was convicted of attempting to blackmail the sister of the sheriff who had arrested him for Cora's murder, which is very, very strange, and I wish I'd been able to find more information on this, but I could not. So, just to recap. 17-year-old Ida Mae Druce died from complications of an abortion at the hands of a monster of a doctor who also killed and or nearly killed countless other young women and newborn babies. 28-year-old Mabel Sturdivant took her own life when faced with an unplanned pregnancy rather than live with the shame of being an unwed mother in the early 1900s. And 25-year-old Cora Raber was murdered by the father of her unborn baby after several attempts at at at-home abortions failed because he didn't want to get stuck marrying her and raising a child with her. It's sad, it's horrifying, and it's about to become a reality for women all over the United States again, which is fucking heartbreaking. Outlawing abortion isn't going to stop it. History has proven that over and over and over. It's just going to create situations like this. It doesn't matter how I feel about it personally or how you feel about it personally. If you're morally, ethically, or religiously opposed to abortion, that is perfectly fine. Don't fucking get one. But how dare anyone, anyone, take that choice from another woman? or think it's their right to make that decision for her. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. 
My main source for today's episode was just old newspapers on newspapers.com because none of these stories made it mainstream. The Dr. Howell horror story I found by accident just perusing old newspapers a few years back. The Mabel Sturdivant story I actually learned about from my friend Pam, who owns and operates the Haunted Stimson Hospital in Eaton Rapids. And the Cora Raber story is actually one that Danny covered at our very last live show together uh, back in 2020, right before the entire world went to shit. So thank you, Pam and Danny, for bringing these stories to my attention. Given the heavy subject matter of today's episode, I'm so glad that we're keeping it light for the liquid cheese segment. Let's talk about how me, cat hater extraordinaire, wound up with a fucking pet cat. I love animals. I love all animals. Um, You know, some have been hits and misses. The rabbits that were fucking adorable that we got at the beginning of the pandemic, we couldn't keep because I was very allergic. Uh, The birds, Karen and Georgia, that I got for dead time stories, that environment was not good for them and they were stressed the fuck out all the time, super, super duper anxious. And so they went to live in a home with a family where they're much happier now. The chickens that I went and got at the beginning of the pandemic, we still have all four of them. We have four chickens, all still alive, way more eggs than we can handle. Dax takes care of the chickens now. He calls them, he calls them his emotional support chickens, which is fine. So, uh, and then the dogs, we've got three puppies that I love to death, to death, like my own children. And now we have a cat. The cat, though, lives at the bookstore. He lives at Dead Time Stories. So we've been doing adoption events with Saved by Zaid, which is here in the Lansing area, a wonderful local nonprofit rescue. And so several Saturdays now they've come to the shop. They have a kitten trailer. Uh, They set up, you know, outside. You can learn about helping the kind of stray cat community. You can donate to them. You can buy things from them that then kind of, you know, you're, you're giving them money to help push their mission forward. You can snuggle cute little baby kitties and big cranky kitties. And you can adopt. And usually the setup is they've got most of them outside, but then they put one cat inside with me in a cage. And to me, this was a safe arrangement. Like if this was a dog rescue, get the fuck out. I'd have a dozen dogs by now. Like Melissa McCarthy and Bridesmaids, that would be me. I would be adopting all of the puppies. But cats, I fucking hate cats personally. Like I love the idea of them being rescued and finding homes, but I don't want a fucking cat right? Sure, bring your cat in here. It's not going to work on me. I don't want a cat. (sighs) And then I met Morrison. Well, his name is Morrison now. He's been named after granddaddy of true crime, Keith Morrison. But his name when I met him was Angus McCorkatale. I don't know who did that to him, but it was not very nice. So he is half Siamese, which is like a best of both worlds scenario because he's got like the face shape of a normal cat and he's small like a normal cat, but he's got the coloring of a Siamese, the bright blue eyes. He's gorgeous. And like as soon as I saw him, this thing went off in my brain where I was like, oh shit, can we have a cat? 
And the volunteers from Save by Zade were even making comments like, oh, yeah, you should adopt a cat and just keep a shop cat here at the store. That'd be so cute. Ha, ha, ha. And I was like, no, I'm not. But Angus McCorkatail was the cat that was inside with me. And he was so fucking sweet and so cute and so loving. And anytime someone like looked at his adoption information and wrote it down because they were going to go apply to adopt him, I would feel so sad. I was like, I don't want you to adopt him. I want to adopt him. So I filled out the application and um, got approved. And (laughs) now we have a shop cat. We're still kind of working out the kinks. You know, obviously one concern is him getting out of the building when people are coming and going. So we're training him with this like portable electric fence system right now that's working pretty well. My back office area that used to just be for napping and like crying when I get overwhelmed is now a cat apartment. I mean, it's it's his. It's not even mine anymore. It's his. And yeah, I mean, there was some some rough days in the beginning kind of figuring it out, but we're we're figuring it out now and it's going really well and people love him and he loves people and yeah. So, I have a shop cat now. But saved by Zade, I mean, he that he was just one of literally hundreds of cats that they're trying to find homes for. So, if you're considering adopting a cat or a kitten, saved by Zade, Z A D E in the Lansing area, they're on Facebook. Look them up and help them out because they're a great organization. In business items, just a couple quick things. Um, Events coming up at Dead Time Stories. The big one (laughs) coming up in this weekend, actually, July 2nd, Saturday, is uh, it's Keith Morrison's 75th birthday. So we're having a big happy birthday Keith bash. Uh, We'll have books on sale uh, at a discounted rate featuring like his real big cases that he's covered. We're going to have some kind of dessert. Cupcakes, I think. I'm not sure. Special Keith merch. Morrison will be there. And Morrison will be collecting presents, right? Keith obviously isn't coming all the way from Dateline headquarters. So Morrison would like you to bring wet kitten food, little cans of wet kitten food, and disposable litter pans because he wants to gift them to his Saved by Zaid family and those are a couple items that they really need. So anytime this week up to and including Keith Morrison's birthday bash this weekend, drop off those donations and be entered to win some cool prizes that we're going to have available. So yeah, just that's that's it there, I think. This full episode every week thing, don't get used to it. It's just because I was super late with the last one, but we're back on track now. So next Tuesday will be a true crime story time. Next week after that will be another full episode, and we're, we're back on our regular schedule. Follow me if you're not already on all of the socials. TikTok is ScreamQueen517. But then, of course, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. I gave up on Twitter a long time ago. And there is the Facebook group also, which is the So Dead Podcast Discussion Group. New episode in a couple weeks. Well, but before that, a new True Crime Tuesday next week. So uh, stay tuned. And until then, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks.